This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Welcome to the Covert Nerd Podcast. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Please take a moment and pause this podcast right now and share it with somebody who you would think would enjoy the same topic. Whether it's a family member, friend, coworker, I would really appreciate it. Please go to covertnerd.net for all the previous episodes and the different ways that you can get in touch with me. And without further ado, let's dive right in and nerd it up. Got two wonderful guests, so and they're experts. We'll find out why in a little bit. Got my kids here, Ruth and Aaron, are going to talk about board gaming and why they love board gaming. So let's just dive right in, Ruth, with you on how you got into board gaming or maybe what was the catalyst? Was there a, a particular game or a friend that showed you a game or what, what got you excited about board gaming? Well, it was always pretty common family-wise. Like every family gathering, we always had board games. Yep. But it was especially frequent with like when we went, we would always go camping every year. And I remember always being so excited because it would just be like two or three days of like just board games and like that's all we would do. So that was always fun. Became like more frequent outside of family gatherings, probably when I went to college with Aaron as well, because he started getting more into them, but also just with my friends, because it's just like a good way and like cheap-ish way to hang out with your friends, have a good time. Also just like see sides of your friends that you never get to see. How competitive they are. Yeah. It's also a great way to meet people because, like, I've been to so many games nights where, like, I won't know, like, four people, but you kind of at least get, like, a grasp of who they are by the end of the night by playing board games with them. Honestly, board games are just a great experience, and it's, like, a common thing that everyone can do. So that's why I like board games. (laughs) Okay. Now, while Aaron's answering it, the next question will be, estimate how many board games, card games do you think you've played in the last... I know five, 10 years. So you think about that while Aaron answers. (laughs) That's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, No, I think my answer is kind of the same as Ruth is that it was always kind of a family thing was playing board games. But I think what really got me into the hobby more later on is that there started to be so many different board games that were coming out with so many different varieties of them. And how I kind of see board games is they're sort of like a cooperative puzzle where either you're trying to solve the puzzle together with, like, in the, if we're a cooperative game, or you're trying to beat the other person to solving the puzzle. So when I kind of figured that out, I started realizing it's a great way to kind of bring another side out of people because they may be kind of polite and kind of fun, but when you start getting a challenge in there and they start realizing there's a puzzle and they start figuring out that puzzle and they try to do it before you, it starts becoming this sort of aggressive, fun bonding experience and there was a, a cafe that opened up nearby, a board game cafe. And when you have a hundred different kinds of competitive puzzles you can kind of solve together, it kind of becomes a great way to bring people together and to try to bring out their side, their competitive side out of them. Was there a particular game though that scratched that itch that got you addicted, I guess, for lack of a better word, or not? <laughs> Star Wars Rebellion. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> It's a it's an easy card game. Well, it, it's a complicated game, but to it, you're just trying to pick up cards to try to move your people around. And one person's trying to find the rebel base, the other one's trying to uh, escape the empire. And when people realize, oh, I just have five or six cards to pick from, and I just have to pick out better cards than they do, uh, 
it's a really good way to get people to strategize with each other and they're trying to solve the game with their partner before the other team can and that's the one that kind of got me into that was the first really complicated board game that i got into okay all right ruth well while she's answering aaron you you ballpark how many games you've played you think ruth how many ballpark how many do you think you've played over the last five ten years i would say between 50 and 60 i feel like is a is a good number is I'm like trying to rack it all up in my head, but also there's so many that I've played that I just don't remember because we've played it once and we we're like, oh yeah, that was okay. Yeah. But like, and then we and then we never play it again. Um, especially like card games into it too. That's where because then you have like the basic ones like Uno or you have like anything yeah. from like a basic 52 card set like poker, trash. Yeah. Do game varieties count? Like there's like yeah. many different kinds of Uno. <laughs> I, I still kind of consider Uno and, and poker and those games as, as even though they're not, there's not a board, but. I would say that like one, like Uno itself is just one. One. And then like, there's like branches of Uno, yes. but yeah. it counts as one. We've also got the old games that we played when you were young, like Spoons, Bazaar. True. Candyland. Candyland. I mean, you've got all those. So there's a lot. What is it? Aggravation. Aggravation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trouble. All right, Aaron. How about you? Ballpark, ballpark number, you think? I honestly think because I've played so many board games at Mana, just off the shelf, just one that's for fun. I'd probably say around sixty to eighty, if I had to give an honest estimate. Sixty to eighty. Okay. Yeah. I thought that'd be higher for you guys, but. Well, I was thinking about it because, like, you have the classic. Well, the classic ones are like what, like uh, Battleship, Candyland, True, uh, Life. Uno, that's probably 15. Risk. And Risk, yeah. Stratego. Yeah. That's a good one. But I would probably say somewhere, probably the 80 range, I guess. Yeah. Aaron, what are your top genres, I guess? What what type of games do you tend to gravitate towards? Maybe even, maybe we can split it into two. What, what games do you gravitate towards now versus maybe what you played, I don't know, five years ago? I would probably say secret roles because I love having people being stressed out trying to figure out <laughs> who they can trust. And it's a very great icebreaker because when people have to argue why they're trustworthy, you really get to see how they how they think and how they try to like present themselves in a stressful situation. It's really it's like you know what it, it's like a uh, what's those places you can go to where you try to solve a puzzle as a group? Escape room. It's like an escape room. Yeah, where the, but the escape room is being the target of people's uh, arguments. And then I would say war games, because it's really fun being able to move miniatures across the board. It's very tactile. And moving miniatures across the board, keeping track of what this place is doing and where you want to move people. Those, it's, a, it's way more tactile than just playing cards. And I think it's fun, always fun having a well-done map that you can move things across. So figures or... or, or... And the tactile yeah, one of feel. The earliest, of... I think what got me into that kind of style and genre was definitely Hero Quest. Yeah. Because that definitely kind of spoiled me a bit when I was young because having well done miniatures is, I prefer over like tiny little cardboard pieces, like one eighth of an inch tiles. marker. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> or tiles. To yeah. represent yeah. Your, your troops. I, I like having well done miniatures. What about what you play now versus, say, five, 10 years ago? Is. Is it pretty much still the same, you think, the genre? No, I'd say 
when you get really into board games, something starts happening. You start getting very picky on what you like <laughs> and what you don't like because you kind of realize, well, I'm not a big fan of uh, just straight puzzle games or just straight games that don't give you much choice. Like Candyland, for example, is a game that you just draw a card and you move and there's no decision making at all. So going so you, can, so you kind of decide, well, I don't really care for that. I don't really care for this. When you start getting picky, you start realizing you get very, very specific. It's not just war games anymore. It's war games with a negotiation aspect. And it's not just war games with a negotiation aspect. It's war games that are cooperative with a negotiation aspect. You start getting more specific with what you like. So I would say that's kind of what changes, uh, what's changed for me in the last five years. I've gotten more picky and I've kind of moved towards basically exclusively like group games that involve a lot of people. All right, Ruth, what, what genres do you like? Um, similar to Aaron, probably because we play a lot of the same board games together. Um, yeah. Hidden Roll, social, social deduction games, I love. I'm not very good at them, but man, is it fun <laughs> to see like other people yes. try and like figure things out. Like most of the time, I'll be wrong. Honestly, I hate being like the bad guy in a hidden role game because I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to figure it out and they're going to ask me like these questions and I won't know how to answer them. But I still have a fun time playing just because like people get so competitive and like so angry sometimes when things happen. (laughs) And it's so funny to watch. (laughs) Yeah. I also really like exploration games. So, like anything where you're like, yeah, like kind of like Hero Quest as well. Or like Betrayal the House on the Hill, yeah. um, where you're like going through somewhere, you're like discovering hidden items, hidden rooms. It's got a storyline. Yeah. I yeah. oh yeah. Any kind of storyboard game I really enjoy. I don't know what genre this would be, but like any board game where you're like trying to communicate something to the other players without blatantly saying it. Like Mysterium. Um, like Mysterium. And there's another one, Hughes and Cues, which I've played a little bit of where it's kind of like that. I really enjoy just like them saying like one word and then you're like trying to interpret what they're saying. So you like having a variety on charades, like you're taking charades, but you're adding some different elements to it. Yes, yes, exactly. We discussed the genre. What top three games do you like, Ruth? What's your top three right now? I'm sure it probably moves a lot. (laughs) So right now, right now, I would say the, I'll go my least favorite to favorite. Okay. So a classic is Mencala ah, because yeah. I feel like you need to have like a classic game in your arsenal that like most people could know. Most people can pick up like almost anyone can pick up Mencala. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that's what I like about it, that it's like fast. People can pick up the concept quickly so you don't have to explain, you know, like a 10 page rule book to them. Although I do wish that there was, like, I looked up today to see if there's, like, a travel version of Mancala, like a, like a mini version. Those don't really exist, which I was kind of sad about. So I'm like, I don't know if I can make one, but it really, would be... It's like a bag of stones. And like a, I know. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I was like, this is so simple. And, like, just taking that, like, to, like, a restaurant or something and just whipping it out, like... What, they like don't a have a concept. travel version? I'm kind of shocked. Well, I mean, the game itself is pretty small anyway. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you could get one that yeah. is has a metal tray, and then the the stones are actually magnets, so they don't move. Oh, that's so true. If you're on a, in a car. Oh yeah, that'd be fun. What's the first time you played Monocall? I think the first time that I can remember is when we went to Texas, like two years ago, three years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, two years ago. 
I remember playing it a lot there because <laughs> I don't because I know Aaron, you played that like growing up on. Club I played Penguin. it on Club Penguin, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Club Penguin, but, Monte <laughs> Yeah. That's a very old but, game too. Yes. Yeah. Made like. I also saw that there was a four-person one. Oh. How does that work? I don't Interesting. Know. Are there like two trays overlaid? It's like a square, and then there's it lines like the little indents line like each line of the square, and then there's like. Uh, section in the middle where you, is like your base, you know, where you like drop things off. Weird. Okay. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. My oh. call is very easy to show to somebody. It takes about a mm-hmm. minute. Do we want to do all three of mine at once? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just go all three, three years, and then we'll go to Aaron. So my next one is Wingspan, which is a newer one that ah, Aaron, uh, introduced, Aaron yeah. introduced me to. Yeah. It was a little complicated at first, and I didn't understand what was going on. But once I played it the second time, I was like, oh, this is actually really fun. And I really love the art. I love the designs of the cards. I love that you get, like, little facts about the birds on the cards. Yes. Also has a dice tower, which I think is great, because not many games have a dice tower. (laughs) No, you have to buy the dice tower usually. Like, just playing, putting down birds is very different compared to a lot of other games. Yeah, I don't think there's really many other games that have a theme like that. It's very pretty. <laughs> yes, it's very pretty. It's very light. It makes you feel good looking at those pretty pictures, those pretty birds. <laughs> well, except some of the ugly birds. They got like the ravens yes. and the turkeys. Or... That's true. <laughs> but yes. True, true. Pelican. Pelican. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like when you're playing the game, it's competitive but not in a stressful way you're kind of just like i'm getting some eggs i'm upgrading my birds i'm feeding my birds i'm feeding my birds that's all that's really happening yeah i like it it's just fast paced enough where you don't get bored but it's not like really slow yes each level is eight minutes ten minutes tops so you're not stuck at one level for very long exactly shorter game easy to grasp I read a review that said that this is like the potato salad of board games. It's always there, and like everyone can always play it if they want to. And potato salad, that's awesome. <laughs> which, like, there were some mixed reviews about it where there's like, oh, it's like okay. But I'm like, I don't know. I think it's a pretty solid game that everyone can play and grasp pretty quickly. My biggest issue with Wingspan is I wish it had another round because by the fourth round, I'm like, man, I got my birds going. I got my bird bonuses going and yeah. I'm like, I, I want to keep going. Like, that's Yeah. I bet you if you looked out there, there's some homebrew that do do a fifth round. Yeah, I would love to do a fifth round because I'd love to fill up my bird board. Yes. Okay. And then my last one is everyone probably guessed this. It's Salem. It's my favorite <laughs> board game. <laughs> Social deduction game. Surprise, surprise. I just like everything about Salem. It has a spooky setting, and the packaging is so cool. It's like a book. If no one's seen the packaging, go look it up, because it's like this cute little book, and all of the pieces fit inside. And this company has a whole series where like all of their games look like books. So spooky setting. All the designs are super cool. It also, I like how it builds on an event that you like already know, and it kind of expands yeah. on it of like what could be happening. And it has like care, not characters, has people who are actually like in Salem. It's like a little complicated for beginners. There's a lot of explaining <laughs> if you've never played it, which can be kind of intimidating if you're in a large group of people who haven't played it. But you're luckily, if you're say, "Oh, I have the witch card." Yeah. Oh, wow. Look no, at that. there are there are those moments that happen with people. 
start over. <laughs> yeah, where I had the most recent time I played, I had someone like I'm like, okay, you gotta memorize like where your trial cards are and like where your witch card is if you have a witch card. And they didn't like know which one was their witch card. So when they confessed, they flipped over their witch card. And so <laughs> oh, they were no. just dead. <laughs> and I'm like, Oops. oh, it feels so bad. But also like that's the fun of that game, I feel like. I'm totally guilty of that too. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think I've seen that happen pretty commonly. Or also like during the night phase. I'm like, okay, guys, you have to flip over, like, the kill cards. They have to be face down, so then you can't see who's being killed. And then we'll go to sleep, and then I'll wake up, and I'll be like, guys. Because, like, it would be all of them will be face up, and, like, the kill card of who they want to kill is face up. And I'm like, guys. guys. Yeah. <laughs> they, they heard it as, like, flip all of them over. <laughs> yeah, literally. So the, the learning curve's a little a little tough, maybe, on that one. Yes. Or has, but, like, maybe has you... more consequences. Yes. Yes, definitely. Versus, say, wingspan, uh, where if you screw up, you just maybe cheat yourself out of some some eggs. Exactly, yeah. There's a lot more consequence. But it, the banter is also, I quite enjoy to be like, oh, that seems like something a witch would do. So that's some witchy behavior happening over there. But I especially love how they integrate, like, the hidden role witch sequence because I feel like there isn't many hidden role games that I can think of where like your role changes throughout the game or you can like gain a role throughout the game. At least I can't think of one off the top of my head. So I think that's a very interesting mechanic that is not as common. Well, the usually um, a lot of games that have like, we've played One Night Ultimate Werewolf, but that's changing a role once in Salem. Yes. It can change like 20, 30 minutes into the game. Exactly. Which is different. Yeah. yeah. And I especially like the strategy of you can get rid of your witch card and then you're still a witch, but no one else knows that you're a witch because you don't have a witch card anymore. So I feel yeah. like you could really play with that. Because you move move that around or you yes. can move that around. Yes. And some of the cards are just fun. Like you could just like destroy someone's whole hand or you can give them the lover's card. So then if one of them dies, they both die. Both like, die. There's, just, yes. there's so many fun things you can do with that game. So that's my favorite game of all time. And I feel like it's going to stay there for a while. Ah, nice. All right, Aaron, what's your top three games right now? So I don't have a particular order for mine. I'm just going to start with my favorite, Spirit Island. <laughs> uh, it's a game that came out only like five years ago. And it is probably my favorite game of all time because... It's cooperative. It works at all player sizes. A lot of games, like, for example, uh, social games, one of my favorites, usually you want to have lots of players, like a minimum of four up to, like, ten for some games. But in Spirit Island, you could play one, two, three, four, five, six. Some people have played up to 20. I don't know how that works, but I'm impressed, and I love it. That'd take forever. Where, yeah, no, they had to buy, like, three different copies to get it to work. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're just playing as a bunch of spirits on an island, and you're just trying to defend against invaders. There's people coming to pillage your island, like, dig up treasure and to try to just ravage the place. And you're trying to cooperate, playing as over 20 different spirits, and all of them have different abilities and how they interact with the island. Some benefit from destroying the island even more. Some benefit from healing the island. Some you're trying to defend. But everybody has a different spirit with a different specialization. And what I really like about it that kind of sets it apart from other games is there's so much customization. You can, because uh, every single, the island's arrayed in a bunch of different panels, and every player you have gets their own panel. 
and you can arrange it into different shapes so different spirits can interact differently. So for this game, there's just so much customization. You can play against specific countries like England, France, Spain, who are coming to colonize the island and they get different abilities. All the spirits play using different cards that have different powers. And what I think Spirit Island really epitomizes more than anything else is just being able to play the game how you want to play it. And that's something I really like. That's something I really, really value in a board game. There's like so much replayability. There is. Those, because of the spirit cards, there's what, 50 of them now? I don't know how many they're up to, but. So there's like 20 spirit ca- like cards and they're making five more. I'm getting that expansion in October. Oh, I thought there was more than that. Uh, don't you have, I thought there was 50 that you had. Maybe I was wrong. No, there's like, there's like 20, 20 something, but they're very oh, thick cards. Okay, so they take up okay. a lot of space. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, I also bought the uh, the beginner-friendly version that had five special spirits just for that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's like 25 spirit cards. There's six different island panels. There's 10 scenarios, 10 enemies, and then like 150 spirit power cards that you can get throughout the course of the game. Because like, yeah, because like in your spirits, like even your one, even in one turn in Spirit Island, you can choose how your spirit grows because your first thing you do is you grow your spirit. Then you have to decide what action you're going to take on your turn, which cards you're going to play, what cards you can play with what energy you have, uh, what you're going to be able to play if the other spirits decide to help you out with their unique powers. And then there's float slow and fast cards that go fast cards go at the start of your turn, slow at the end. And then the invaders can like change up how they play depending on how you play. There's just like so many different things that go into just one turn. And that's why Spirit Island takes four hours to go with players. Yes. Because the, the biggest thing that comes to Spirit Island with new players is analysis paralysis. Because the longest thing it takes people to do is just to decide what they're going to do at the start of their turn. I agree with this. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's even if you don't play with event cards. Because at the start of the invader turn, you can have event cards that affect the island. And a lot of them come with choices. Like, do I want to poison the island even more? Or do I want to cough up a lot of energy and then take a, a lighter hit? And so you have event cards on top of that. And then each opponent you face, like France or England, has like a special ability that affects you as well. One turn of Spirit Island with new players can take like an hour at least. So the learning curve is a little high on Spirit Island, I would say. It is. But I would say if you get into it, you can do so much with it that a lot of other board games don't even get close to so if you're willing to put the time and effort into it, it rewards you like so much with the experience. That's a unique game for sure. Yeah, no, it's only five years old too. That's the weird thing. It's like it's so interesting how new it is, but it's like it's on the top ten board game geek board games of all time. Nice. All right, what's your number two? Dawn Company. Ah, okay. So in this game, you're playing as a bunch of family members who have a controlling interest in the East India Trade Company, and it's a nice company, you know, it makes makes so much money for you, but you don't really care about the company. You're in this for your family and the best, richest retirement you can possibly get. <laughs> so you'll play different positions of the company, like the director of trade, you choose where ships go, manager of shipping, how many ships do we need, head of the military, what are we going to attack? But you're only doing those positions to get yourself nice rewards and to get yourself a big mansion at the end of the game. <laughs> and so awesome. throughout the game, positions move around, people get fired, people get uh, people die in office. 
and you'll negotiate with each other because the biggest position in the game is the chairman. And the chairman decides who the director of trade is. So you have to pick someone out from there. You have to pick from uh, these little advisors in the company. And when the director of trade gets into office, they pick who the manager of shipping and military affairs is. And then military affairs chooses who's the commander of the army. And so there's this big bureaucracy thing where you're negotiating and you're fighting over other players because everybody gets to choose at the beginning of the game where they want to put their people. And then at the start of each turn, they get to choose where they want to put their next person. Am I going to put them as a writer under the president of Burma or the president of Bengal? Am I going to buy a share in the company? Am I going to go buy ships, workshops? So it's just a lot of negotiation, deciding where you're going to put your people. And then you have to decide how am I going to profit from this position? Because the company could fail and you could still win. And there's strategies where you could try to intentionally cause it to fail. So you have to worry about like, oh, I have a big stake in the company, but is this guy going to try to sink me just to make, uh, you know, just to win at the end of the game? So it's a lot of fighting. And it's kind of funny that it's all about the East India Trade Company, but at the end of the day, it's all about families fighting over who's actually going to profit and win through managing this company just for their own personal gain. So I really enjoy it. It's got negotiation, it has interesting choices. It has a fun theme and a lot of fun mechanics that work together to create a fun cooperative experience. It's a lot of palace intrigue almost. Yes, a lot of palace intrigue, but it's like corporate 1850s Britain intrigue. <laughs> what um, I really like about though is like a lot of it has positions, like there's a bunch of positions at the company, but you can create new ones depending on your actions. Like if you made a part of India, you can create a new bureau that has a new position open up. So you can create even more things to fight over as the game goes on. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> How long has that one been out? That one's only been out for, I think, three years. Yeah, and the artwork's really good, if I remember correctly. It's, the art's well done. Yeah, and it's made by the guy who did Root, and he did another game that's like very popular, PAX Premier. PAX Premier, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he did PAX Premier and he did Root. So he's very good at thematic, like political intrigue games. That's his, his favorite. He loves historical spins on them. All right, what's number one? Not necessarily favorite, but the last one on your list. I got to go with the one that got me into board games like a lot more, Star Wars Rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's it's meant for two players, but I think it plays best at four because when you have two people arguing with each other like, oh, is the Rebel base at Alderaan? Is, is the Rebel base on Hoth? Is the Rebel base on Bespin? And they're fighting over trying to figure out where that is. Well, as the Rebels, you're like, oh, man, like should we attack Coruscant? Should we, should we go for Mustafar? Should we play this card? We only have like... Uh, a few cards we can play this turn because we only have so many commanders we want to use on this because you can only play as many cards as you have commanders so the feeling of having two people arguing over like where we should go what should we do in this move it's not really about finding the rebel base or like trying to defend the against the the empire it's really more about like fun deduction social social deduction but in a star wars theme no that game i played the longest game I played a Star Wars Rebellion was seven hours, and that was fantastic. And it's tactile too, because you got all the pieces and yeah, you have the little Death Star pieces. You, if you guys uh, haven't seen that, look it up. The pieces for Star Wars Rebellion are like top notch. Oh my god, that's and why you like it. It's because of the pieces. It is. It's got pieces <laughs> you can move around, and they're all well done. The game's like 120 bucks, but it's totally worth it. <laughs> it's a good combination of card usage and figures. Yeah, that's what I really like, is I don't think I like any 
games that are just solidly one specific kind of play. I like a mix. Because in Spirit Island, it's cards, it's pieces, and it's got nice like board artwork. And in John Company, it's got cards, it's got the nice board, and it's also like arguing and like socializing. So I kind of like things that are a little a little dip of everything. Since you've played 60 to 80 games a piece there, and you've listed your three, what makes a game fun then? So I would say what makes a game fun, I mean, first of all, I like it when a game looks pretty. I mean, we talked about that with Wingspan. I like it when the artwork's pretty. I also like when it kind of builds a world around itself and immerses you in the game. Um, I feel like this is really well done when you have, like Aaron said, like figurines, as well as just like a setting I like. So if it's like a fantasy setting, I really like any of those or a spooky setting. Yeah, any of those I really like because I just like being immersed in a in a board game in the world of a board game. What also makes it fun, and this is a tricky one, is the group of people you play it with. Because that can be, yeah, that can be a very hit or miss. Yeah, it can completely change how you feel about a game, how you feel about board games in general, how you feel about those people. Because, like, if you're playing with a group of people who are not into the game that you were playing, it's not going to be fun. All it takes is really one person who's just checking their phone the entire time, and it just really brings down the experience for that. Yeah, it's, and sometimes it takes a while to figure out, like, a group of people that games work with, and sometimes certain games work with them, and certain games don't. You know, like, longer games where you have to, like, fully pay attention and strategize might not work with a group of people. And some people don't really get into that mindset where, like, they have to think and, like, strategize. Like, it really is a different world for them in terms of, like, thought. They're only like, oh, Monopoly. They don't realize that there is strategy to like board games and it's not just like a kid thing. Well, there, there is strategy in Monopoly. It's just more simplistic. Yeah, what I should say. Candyland's uh, my favorite strategy game. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, I just like board games because it always creates like a fun time with everyone. It's always a fun time to look back on. Like, yeah, remember when you completely freaked out when you figured out that I was, you know, like I was this person or whatever like remember how you acted when we accused you of being this person so personally on this topic i just want to bring up that 10 years ago we were playing a game of risk at a family celebration (laughs) i love the story i love the story (laughs) and i i don't remember what exactly happened but i moved my pieces to a spot and then ruth said no aaron you can't move your pieces there and i was like oh that's that's silly ruth and then my brother came in and said uh, no, Aaron, you, you can't do that. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? And then everybody on the table said, yeah, yeah, Aaron, like you, you lost that or like you can't move there. And somehow Ruth does this all the time when she plays little jokes, but this one actually worked and everybody believed it. And I ended up like losing a bit in risk for a while. And Ruth didn't even think it was going to work. I could tell the look on her face. She was just joking, but she went along with it. And I like, I lost like a round of risk or something like that. And I was so angry about this. I still remember this, like, 10 years later. Well, and it was, yeah, like Aaron said, like, sometimes I just play little jokes just to see if what happens. Because, like, I think it was, like, we were going around the board and we were placing our pieces. And I had just gone. And no one saw me go, though. So I was like, Aaron, you can't put your piece there. Because, like, I wanted to put my piece there. And then everyone was like, yeah, Aaron, you can't put your piece there. And then I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I put my piece where I wanted to put my piece. Aaron was just like, I could feel the anger coming off of him. He was so angry. (laughs) 
it wasn't risk. Little I know, it was social deduction, and I lost that round. <laughs> I, I think I, I think I lost that game of risk, though. I don't think I won, but that was like a peak moment of board games <laughs> yeah. for me. Fluffy. It was just like I won. I, I may have lost the war, but I won this battle. And that's exactly. <laughs> that's funny. Exactly. Ooh, that's like a bluff, a poker bluff, and you won. Yeah. Yeah, she didn't even try. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't even try. <laughs> one, one for you, and then I suppose ten other losses. On so, hey, you know, you gotta, <laughs> yeah, gotta count your count your wins when you can. <laughs> for me, what makes a game fun, I think, is player interaction. I really, really, really like games that involve players having to talk to each other, like either negotiate, argue, fight, strategize. What really maximizes like players talking. Because, like I said at the start, is that I see board games as like a collaborative puzzle. And I think they're at their best when the players are talking amongst each other trying to solve this puzzle. So things like Spirit Island, for example, players have to cooperate, talk over strategy. They need to figure out how they're going to defeat the invaders and uh, save the island. Um, Star Wars Rebellion is 2v2, trying to talk amongst each other and try to figure out where the rogue base is, where we're going to go. John Company, your company executives fighting over who gets the best positions and what we're going to do on the island uh, or India. So for me, it's really whatever gets the players blood pumping, talking, strategizing, thinking. Um, and also what Ruth said, a game that's pretty, I think like the term I use is like the theme of the game. Because um, I think themes can also recontextualize what you're doing. Um, you're not just moving a piece, drawing a card, playing a card. A theme kind of works like a, a book metaphor does. Because in Star Wars Rebellion, when you're playing a card and doing actions, you're not just doing that. Within the theme of the game, you're also sending troops around. You're exploring. You're attacking. We're trying to stop the Empire. We're trying to crush the rebels. In Spirit Island, you're trying to destroy the invaders or save the island. So a good theme kind of adds a metaphor to what your actions are doing. If that's something that appeals to you, like it does for me, I think that really strengthens the experience. That's like the that's the frosting, that's the cherry on top that really perfects the experience. So those are things I like in a, in a board game. Sure, and I suppose your what what mood you're in that day also affects what game you're going to play and how fun the game yeah. is. I mean, if you're well, I like you say that because it sounds like I'm going to play like an angry board game. No, like, no, I'm just. Board game. I, I, I suppose some, sometimes you're in the mood for D and D. You know, four hours of grinding. Some mood. Sometimes yeah. it's just Mancala. I want five minutes just to play a quick round, and I, I'm I'm oh, happy. Yeah. <laughs> so. I think I I also like any kind of like role playing game where there's like like Aaron said a theme. Like I don't know Aaron or Dad if you've ever played Bang where it's like cowboy themes. I just love just talking, <laughs> pretending to talk like a cowboy and being like, I'm your trusty deputy. <laughs> or it's like, there's any theme like that where you just can like have silly banter about whatever ha is happening in the game. It's always really fun. Dude, Bang, Bang, the sole reason, the best reason to play Bang is for the accents. That's, I play, exactly. I use it every yeah. time I play it. Yeah, I think that's like the only cowboy. reason why I like the game is just like <laughs> the silly little banter you can have. Yeah, yeah. I'm your deputy, and I'm going to shoot you with my machine gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Aaron, this might be more of a question for you. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, Ruth, on your experience. What, what do you see in modern games that's different than maybe games from 40, 50, 60 years? You know, we're talking Monopoly, Risk. You know, those are 60-plus-year-old games or Clue. Or what, what do you see 
that's different now in board games versus those older games? Fan interaction. Ah, okay. Um, fans being able to go to forums or like Discord and like talk about, oh, I like this, I like this, I don't like this, I like that. And fan additions, something fans can do now. Uh, if you go to boardgamegeek.com and look up your favorite board game, you can find uh, there's this little file section called variants and files where fans will have like player aids, player variety, new versions of the game to play. Um, and I think where that really ties into with like the, the variants is that. I think what's big now is variety. Like Monopoly has like negotiation, has chance with like being able to like roll dice to see where you go. Um, has those elements, but if you really, really want a specific kind of like negotiation game, you can go to Board Game Geek, look up the uh, genre of negotiation, you can find 500 something games. Do you want a game where you negotiate medical equipment at a hospital? Do you want a game where you negotiate uh, stolen treasure? Do you want a game where you negotiate property? Something you can find is you can find like a laser pinpoint focus of exactly what you want out of a board game experience. And you can find it easily online. You can go, you can find a Discord fan group to play it pretty quickly. And if you don't like this specifically, you can find like 10 something different homebrew rules on how to play. So I think what you can, I think back then, um, you only had probably 10 to 20 popular games. And then if you wanted to find something other than that, you'd have to like find through word of mouth, like something more specific. But now you can basically go to a, an all you can eat buffet and get exactly what you want, specifically a raid how you want and play more or less with who you want. So I think the variety and ease of access and fan interaction all kind of create a very different experience that is kind of what you have nowadays. Oh, and support. If you can't understand a rule, you can Google it and pretty much find what you need. That too. True. It's also a lot more available than it was 40 years ago, because now you can go online and find whatever board game you want, or you can like discover board games from TikTok or YouTube or Instagram. So it's also a lot more available than it ever was. There's, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering uh, what, what, what element, I guess, I, I think the older games were more broad, like you said. Mm -hmm. They really weren't mm -hmm. niched down. You had, you know, probably 50, 60 games to pick from in, in 1960 versus, you know, what, 5,000 or more now. What, um, what elements, though, or, or, or here's another question. Do you think you'll still see Spirit Island being played 50 years from now, 60 years from now, like you're seeing Monopoly. You know, Monopoly is never going away. That's that's always going to be mm -hmm. available. But do you think Spirit Island or Salem or any of the ones you mentioned will be around in 60 years? What what has the stickiness? You know, Monopoly has a stickiness. Mm -hmm. So does Clue. So does, you know, some of these older games, chess and checkers. What's What's that sticky factor that games have now that, older games have well i think what monopoly has over most other board games i would argue isn't necessarily in terms of quality i would argue it's mass uh mass adoption like everybody has basically played at least one game of monopoly in their life so if you want a game that everybody's going to pretty easily understand pulling out monopoly is like an easy choice i think 
what these other board games would need in order to last a long time is mass adoption. I think anything that's ever been in the board game geek top 10 will probably always be around in some form. Like there'll be someone, there's always be a bunch of people who have copies or something like that. Um, for Spirit Island and other games like that, the problem is, is that board games are kind of rapidly exploding. Like there's more coming out every year. There's more people playing every year. And as a result of this, you're going to see many, 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 many more games come out. There's going to be more creators, more people making them. So, and I think what comes with that is an element of refinement. Creators nowadays making board games have decades of experience they can look at. They can say, oh, I like this. I like how this works. I like how that worked. Um, and I think you're going to see, as time goes on, more refined games, games that kind of push things even further. Um, and I like that because I think in 50 years' time, we're probably going to have some really awesome board games. Like even like a digital, like adding a digital app, some games do that to offload a lot of the thinking and like uh, games to allow like new content. Um, there's reprinting. Spirit Island right now has on its 11th reprint, like for adding new uh, clarifications and stuff like that. Um, and so I think in 50 years, you're going to see more refined games, games that build off of previous stuff. Um, I think, like you said, you always see Monopoly around, but I don't think that's necessarily because it's a great game. I think what keeps it around is because a lot of people have played it. So in order for games we have nowadays to stick around, they're going to have to be like played by a large audience. But considering the variety of games nowadays, I'm not sure how many games are really going to reach that same level of Monopoly. It's a lot easier to compete with 50 games than 5,000. Yeah. Well, and plus, I think you can put some of these games in different categories. I would put Monopoly and Clue and, and some of the life as more of a casual, Uno casual gamer. Whereas Salem, Spirit Island, some of these, you know, Wingspan, I don't think that's for your, you know, grandma's not going to go to Walmart and pick up Wingspan for, well, they might, I guess, but I just don't, I think it's in a different category than than uh, Monopoly or, or Battleship or some of these other games where, again, it probably falls more in that Mancala category. This is a simple, yeah. casual gamer type game, whereas Salem, uh, you know... It's more Spirit, intermediate level. Spirit Island, those are uh, Rebellion. Those are... That's something that's more advanced, that's in, in my niche. opinion. <laughs> you, 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 it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison when you say Spirit Island or uh, Re Star Wars Rebellion versus, you know, Scrabble. It's just... That's going to attract two different now, types of apples gamers. Apples, are you referring to the board game or the metaphor? <laughs> uh, funny, funny. Yes, yes, yes. So anyway, um, so I those uh, those games I sent out or the I sent out a, a statistics thing. I don't know if you saw that, Ruthie. The oh, board game yes. statistics. The... So. Yes. Uh, Statistica ran a survey and said that Gen Z finds board games more enjoyable than all than other generations. So 38% of Gen Z find board games really enjoyable to play, by far the largest percentage of any generation surveyed. But, so the next survey by Meeple Mountain said that board games are most popular between the ages of 25 and 54. So... <laughs> It's kind of interesting that the author said there's either two things at play here, either Gen Z play them and don't enjoy them, or B, the younger generation plays them less frequently. Now, Aaron and I talked about this. Is I think 
the reason just it's 25 to 54 year olds that are it's the most popular board games are the most popular is because they have the money to buy them whereas gen z uh. doesn't have as much money to to spend on board games so that might be why mm -hmm. there's a little bit of that's why they're more popular with the 25 to 54 year olds than they are with the gen zers so that's probably what's going on there but anyway i yeah. thought that was an interesting statistic and then 10.22 percent of gamers spend over a thousand dollars a year on board games according to print ninja yeah, I feel like that's, that's definitely Aaron. Aaron falls into that category. Yeah, yeah, Aaron falls into that category. That's what I was saying. I've definitely spent at least $1,000 in the last year on board games. It can, it can lead to an addiction. Yes. <laughs> so I thought that was some fun statistics. And the board gaming industry is, see, it grew from, in the United States, from $1.16 billion in 2017 to... 3.63 billion in 2023 so it more than doubled in six years so it's definitely a growing genre and i always thought that was interesting with screens being more popular why have board games taken off in the last 10 years i would say it's board games are a very very social activity yeah. Like I've played online games with people, but it's very different than playing with like six to eight to 10 people all huddled around a table trying to argue with each other about who and who is not the witch or who is the werewolf. Mm -hmm. And so I think what it offers more than uh, a screen, for example, is it's very, it's visual, it's tactile, and it's very social. And so I think what a lot of people like nowadays is that because there's such a great variety, you can kind of, like I said, pick out what you want. And then you can just like bring a group together and start talking and yelling and arguing and stuff like that. Because you don't necessarily do that with like a movie or a video game, but with a board game or a card game, that is kind of the experience you get. So I would say it's, it's tactile, social, and more available than it's ever been for a group, especially post pandemic where people are used to like, either not socializing too much or being locked in a space with other people. Both of those, I would say, would drive you towards a more positive social game or uh, activity like board games. Yeah, and it gives everyone a like a common task to work on. So then it builds and like like we said earlier, it's a great like board games in general are a great icebreaker. Like a lot of times you won't know people and then you'll know them it go to mouth by the time you leave. Uh, it kind of builds a community between like you and your friends. Uh, also with quarantine, we realized that social interaction is something that we really like and we really miss if we don't have it. So it's, it's just a good excuse to hang out with people because sometimes you'll just be like, I don't really want to watch a movie because that's only half, everyone's only half paying attention during a movie because everyone's attention span is two seconds long. And it's too expensive to go out somewhere and do something. So it just, Ooh, good it, point. yeah, it's just, it's a good, it's a good way to hang out with your friends. Now, Ruth, have you ever had that one board gamer who like suffers from analysis paralysis worse than anybody else and like yes. takes five to 10 minutes while everybody else is like figured things out 10 minutes ago? <laughs> yeah. And then everyone gets like disconnected from the game because it takes 15 minutes for one person to do their turn. Oh, well, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? Like... <laughs> well, Aaron, you brought up a good point. The guy checking their girl, checking their phone, 
So the screen mm. ruins the board gaming experience. I would say if you're choosing the screen over the board game experience, why are you here? <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was kind of, yeah, that was a good point that the screen is ruining the board. They, they don't mix too well. Yeah. Cause like with the screen, like if there's something you necessarily need to be doing, like if there's someone who demands your attention right now, I would say you probably shouldn't be playing this board game. You should be dealing with that problem. Um, Cause I mean, unless you're like a doctor waiting for some kind of response back from a patient, like I don't think you necessarily need to be on your phone because that signifies to me either you have some kind of issue in your life that's demanding like a lot of attention. And again, I would say, why are you playing a board game? Like go deal with yeah, it. Go deal with the issue. <laughs> yeah, but, go deal with your issue. <laughs> I thought, because, well, go ahead. Oh, I, I've just played lots of board games and like when the board game's good, like nobody's paying attention to their phone. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was going to mention Aaron, you, you mentioned two games. Well, well, not two games. You mentioned one game based on an IP star Wars, but then there's also the Lord of the Rings game that you like too. And mm -hmm. I think the quality of IP games has gotten better because I remember when I was a kid playing X-Men games, Indiana Jones games, Back to the Future, you know, games based on movie IPs, and they were not good. You can tell that the studios just threw this out there and let's let's sell a bunch of games based on a movie and a Star Wars games and stuff too. And so I think looking at the IP games that, that are out now versus then are much better, which I think gives gamers more, like you said, a way to niche down. And if they're a really big Game of Thrones fan or a Harry Potter fan, odds are the game that they came out with is actually pretty decent and it's actually fun. I didn't even know there was a Back to the Future board game. I'm looking that up right now. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know what this looks like. Yeah, there, I think there was that a Back to, um, uh, I know there's an Indiana Jones one and an X-Men one I remember playing. The X Men game was horrible, and it was not very good. Uh, I think they had a Spider-Man game. Was that the one that game. you had, like uh, that you had when I was a kid? That had like little miniatures, like yeah. uh, had like Professor X and yep. X Men. Yeah, that was another one I need to look into. I remember the miniatures on that one looked cool. They were, that was, that that was the only it. good part pretty? of the game. That's it looked. Yeah. I it looked kind of pretty. I would say I give it a seven out of ten. Like seven out of ten looks pretty. Yeah. Uh, no, well, the figures though, didn't the compensate for the game quality. I would say, yeah, because like Star Wars Rebellion, there's nice, well-done figures. There's a whole map, cards with unique art. War of the Ring is a whole another thing. Like you have 20 different kinds of miniatures split across six, seven armies. And then you have all those little cards and stuff like that. Um, but another thing, like to tie back to the other question of what the difference is between board games now and 40 years ago, you can go on Etsy and you can get 3D printed mountains that match the mountain ranges. You can get a custom Mount Doom. You can get hand painted figures for every single individual in the game. Um, you can get custom maps. Like you can get a whole new experience. Um, so I would say the quality of everything, like both from the company and from fans, is like different. If you have a thousand dollars you want to spend on a board game to make it like nothing else, uh, yeah, you'll have a one of a kind, amazing board game. <laughs> Well, and the playability, uh, to reference that mm -hmm. X-Men game, it just didn't have – the figures looked great, but the playability, mm -hmm. there was no fun to it. It was it was almost Candyland with X-Men figures, essentially. So it's fine if you're 5, I suppose, but if you're 10, <laughs> 11, 12 – That'd be a step up to me over Candyland. I'd like X-Men yeah. Candyland. Like, yeah, yeah. 
you you drew you drew Muir Island move up to space yeah, or something like that. That's kind of kind of what it was. So you have to have yes, it has to look pretty and look great. But if there's no fun playing it, it doesn't matter how pretty it looks. It's just like the old saying: you can oh, absolutely put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. So. <laughs> I was running into that problem the other day. I was playing this game called War of Whispers. It was like a Game of Thrones knockoff. And everything looked nice, but the game felt like it hadn't been play tested. Like cards would have vague descriptions. The instructions were like very thin. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it looked very nice. It looks great. But if a game isn't explained well, it doesn't have good mechanics, like I hope you didn't spend money on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, that was your, is that one of your worst games? Let's get into maybe your worst games you've ever played. Is that one of your worst <laughs> games? Aaron? Oh, see, I've played so many. That's the, that was a difficult question. Ruth, do you have one off the top of your head? You were talking about it earlier. Um, off, okay. Well, if we're going worst, because there's worse and weird ones. So I'll talk about both of them, though. Okay. Worst game, phase 10. Phase 10? <laughs> yes. Phase 10. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> like, it's, I mean, just growing up, I remember being like, this game is so boring. I would never finish it because it's just so long. It is long. It's so long. It's, there's no strategy to it. You're just like waiting around until the card you need is there. And then, and then you get another phase done. Especially if you're playing with a lot of people, that game is so long and tedious. It's tedious. It is tedious. So that's that's one of my worst games, I think, because I it took me a while to think of it, and I was like, "What's a game that I will never play?" Um, <laughs> and then the strangest slash weird game is me and Aaron have played your worst or your worst nightmare, and it's like Aaron, it's that one with like the black snake on it oh, or I know, whatever I sold it at the swap meet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how bad it was. <laughs> yeah, we played it because, like, the concept of it is that you're like trying to figure out your friend's worst fears, and like, oh, it's a frightening game with scary nightmares, and all the players face their fears. And um, in one of the descriptions, it says it's a great icebreaker. This game inspires conversations as the players share what really scares them and why. And you think, okay, no, that sounds interesting. Like, I can figure out my friend's worst fear. And some of the cards, just from this image, are a closed shower curtain, someone's worst fear, walking over sidewalk grates, slipping on banana peels, short battery life, losing, or getting HIV. <laughs> <laughs> I would say getting HIV is a much different fear than a closed shower curtain. Yeah. I, I think that's why it doesn't work because like these fears are so ranged. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I don't like stepping over a grate or I don't like stepping over like a puddle of water, but also I don't want to be like have this disease like you know? slip on a banana peel. It's like I, I'm scared I'm scared of like dying of old age and also getting a poorly flavored gum like or gum yeah. yeah and i remember we played it and you have to like rank of like which ones you think that person would be the most scared of on like a scale of like one to five or whatever and hmm. it just it was just like boring yeah <laughs> it just didn't it just didn't work 
Yeah, I managed to sell it for ten bucks at the swap meet. I was surprised I got that much. That that's surprising. That's surprising. That's like almost you almost got your money back because I feel like I know was right fifteen dollars yeah. or something. <laughs> they fell for the card for the cover art. If, yeah, uh, that's what happened yeah. to us. That's what happened to us. <laughs> that's the one that gets you in by the cover. Yes. So that that's one of my strange games that I've played. How about Pigmania? Pigmania. I've never. Oh, I'm gonna Google that. that. Hold on. Oh, pig I had mania? it. You have it. It's at Grandma and Grandpa's house. It's, you have to roll the pigs. They're like dice, and the different positions they get into give you more points. I've never played this. Oh, okay. We'll have to play it. Wait. Let me look at that. Yeah. No, I don't think I've played this. I thought you did. It felt like something they had pulled out at some point. Maybe Aaron uh, did, may- but yeah, maybe I just don't Pig remember mania. playing it. It's it's uh it's at Grandma and Grandpa's well. That's the weirdest game I think oh, I had to put up with there. Wait, I think I found an old cover art and it does look kind of familiar. You'll have to we'll have to play it. <laughs> it's <Yes>. silly. <laughs> it's for little kids, but it's just kind of goofy. So anyway. All right. Aaron, how about you? Weirdest or so, dumbest game or worst <laughs> game? My worst game of all time, and this might be a little contentious because it is popular. I'm going to say Cards Against Humanity. Yes. Ooh. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. You just made about I, half I, the I listeners mad. I have love it. I understand why they enjoy it, but I hate it because it's Candyland for adults in some way. Like, you just draw a card, and then the grossest, most, like, sexual, most, like, aggressive card wins almost every time. It's, it's an excuse to get people who don't play board games or who don't want to think in a board game to play I understand why, like I said, if you're in a mood where you just don't want to, like, spend an hour doing complicated math problems in, like, a board game, I understand, like, it's the EDD one to pull out to play it, but, like, it's just not fun. It's just, it's the same one. The most fun I've ever had with Cards Against Humanity is drawing three to four cards, handing them to someone, and saying, which one of these would you want to go through, like, the most or the worst, or, like, the least, like... When you take Cards Against Humanity and you force people to start asking questions, like, oh, these are your three roommates, like the shark from Jaws, Arnold Schwarzenegger, or like uh, some other hero, Luke Skywalker, whatever. What, who would you want as a roommate? Like, when you ask them questions like that, it's actually fun because people have to put their personality into it. But when you play just regular Cards Against Humanity, you don't have anybody's personality because it's just like, I pick this card and it's the most crude. Ha <laughs> ha, I yeah. win. Yeah, but when you force that, when you force them to ask questions, and you're getting the personality, I think that's what I hate about it is there's no, there's not really anybody's personality that comes through. You're just going through a step by step game. Okay, you draw the cards. Now we're all going to pick the crudest one. They win. Next yeah, person, the it's a step by step, paint the dots experience. It's pretty repetitive too. Like it's never oh, yeah. a new experience, so it gets old after like two rounds at most. Oh yeah, I've left parties because they wouldn't. All they wanted to do was play Cards Against Humanity. They, people very love it, so I don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't get it, but yeah. So like, that's my least favorite game of all time. Um, my weirdest game of all time. Um, I have like two. There was a one called Dairy Man, where you had to roll dice, and depending on your die results, that shows how much milk you made, like milked from a cow. And then if you, because you had to form dice combos because like there are three different barns and depending on what your combination of dice you rolled, like number was, is what barn you got milk from. And you rolled six dice and you got to choose two to three to make that combo. 
And so you had to get the most milk. But if you rolled a specific die combo, because you had a blue dice, if you got the right number on that one, you got frozen dairy treats instead of milk. <laughs> That's and <awesome>. then, <laughs> And then if you managed to fill all three barns in a turn, you could turn some of your milk into cheese, which was worth more points. So I would say that was the weirdest like board game experience I'd had. <laughs> just because of how just odd hilarious. it was. It just sounds so dumb that it's, it sounds interesting. Yeah, right. Or it sounds so silly. It. Not it's, dumb, silly. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very weird. That's why I got it at the swap meet. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Sometimes you have to um, get those just to have a weird one. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird experience. Um, the strangest one is one I actually found a few days ago. Um, I don't know if I can pronounce it right because I think it's a Mayan name, but it's like Tzolkin, the Mayan calendar. And it's worker placement where you put down, you have uh, five different dials and in between all those dials is a big like gear. And the big gear turns all the little gears. And so you put down a worker, you have to decide where you're going to put down your worker on these gears because each gear does a different thing. And then at the end of the turn, you turn the dial a few spaces and those workers turn with it and they become more valuable. Because at the, you know, these dials, there's a bunch of different symbols. And like, the more you're higher up your worker is on the dial, the better they are. So you have to put down workers in anticipation of where they're going to be a few turns from now to see if that's like, what you want to get. Like, do I want more wheat, spiritual energy, supplies, etc. But it's just interesting, because it has an actual physical dial you turn, and that determines yeah. like the game. And so that's I thought that was, was a very interesting, it... strange thing. So it physically has a dial. Abstracted in board games, you don't usually have a physical piece that involves it. Ah, so it does. I was just going to ask. It does have a physical dial, huh? Yeah, there's a five physical dials, and then a center gear, and then you turn that center gear, which represents time moving. So is it on a board, like a dial, or? or... Uh, Yeah, it's on a board, and then you you put the gears into the board. Oh. Into and then you spin it. So that was kind of interesting because, like, a lot of games, it's abstracted. Like, oh, time passes move this little piece to this spot to represent a year moved. But in this game, like a dial actually moves to represent time passing, which is kind of like different. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Like I said, it's tactile. So like, that's something that's kind of fun. I like that board games that lean into it. Like mousetrap is probably the most popular example of a tactile (laughs) board game. (laughs) That is. Yeah. That's your first, usually your first tactile game or one of your first. Yeah. Yeah. There's really no point to to mousetrap. It's just everybody wants to spring the trap. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the fun. It's mousetrap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of like uh, interesting or strange board game, I'd say that's one of them. Ah, okay. I like that tactile game, the the or the the Mayan one. That's interesting. Well, I like the cow one too. I want to milk your cows and make cheese. <laughs> yeah, get to roll. How much milk do you get? <laughs> I mean, who would have thought? Talk about niching down. <laughs> Yeah, do you you really love milking cows and getting dairy treats and cheese? This is the game for you. This is the game for you. It's sell really well in Wisconsin. (laughs) Yeah, Wisconsin sponsored. That'd be great. Yeah, Yeah, no kidding. The National Cheese Council. The National Dairy Council. In terms of like bad games, another thing I'd point out is like complexity. If a game is like super complex and spend four hours learning it and then you realize it's not fun... That's something else I don't like in board games. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Talk about wasting your time. Yeah. I have PAX Renaissance. That's the one I'm going to put in that box. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's what you said. It was a horrible game. <laughs> Just too much. Yeah, because whenever you learn a complicated board game, you have to keep in mind, not only do you have to learn it, you have to get four to five or even one other person to learn it. 
Yeah. And are you going to be willing to spend five hours teaching this person how to play that game? And are they even going to play it when you get done? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Otherwise they're just going to throw their hands up. That's where you really have to, when you're designing games or you have to figure out who your market is. So, you know, you're not going to sell the people buying Uno aren't going to be buying Pax Romana or they're probably not going to buy be buying Star Wars Rebellion or, or some of these more complicated games. They're, they're again, they're kind of a tier one casual gamer. So uh, that that's something I guess you have to keep in mind. But as as a board game collector, is that something you do you have? Well, like Ruth said, you have Mancala. So you do have some simple games. But then you have the complicated games, right? You have a little bit of both. Yeah, because I, I think it's a very different experience. Like for casual games, um, that's if you just want to pull out something quick at a place just to play games or to play games with people who aren't usually familiar with those kinds of games. Um, I would say when you're playing complicated games, you're trying to get an ex like a deep something you can really sink your teeth into kind of experience. And that's something you're probably going to seek out more than just a casual, like, let's play a game of Uno Spin or Uno, yeah. the one with the machine that shoots out the cards. Yeah. So I would say it kind of depends on what you're looking for. But for casual games, I think that it, it's nice to have because you can just pull them out of the place. And they make good icebreakers to get people into more complicated games. So I think they're good, like, footstool, I guess, to get to where you want to go. You start with something simple, and then a year later, they've realized you've tricked them into playing 100 hours of complicated board games. <laughs> <laughs> like games like uh, Munchkin. Munchkin's probably more of a, it's not a casual gamer one, but it's not definitely on a high tier hard game. I mean, I think most people yeah. could teach people Munchkin in about five minutes. Yeah, I'd say Munchkin, a pyramid arcade, that one with the pyramids, that's really good. I love that that's one. A simple one. Yeah. Um, pyramid arcade's great. Different kinds of munchkin flux. Flux is good. Oh yeah. Okay. I guess that here, one has changing rules. Here's one. I guess to to wrap up with, um, since we're kind of shooting off a bunch of games, what's what's two or three games that maybe you'd recommend to to somebody that's uh, maybe not a casual gamer but wants to get into some more complicated games? In your opinion, would you take your three that you that's your top three, Ruth? Um, I. Well, it depends on like what level they're if at. If you're talking to somebody their... right now, you're like, "Hey, what's some games you'd recommend me playing?" What would you recommend, Ruth? I I would recommend. I feel that <laughs> you've played this with me. Throw throw avocado or throw throw burrito. Same game. That one is because it's it, just match cards, and then there's also the fun like aspect of throwing avocados at people. Um, I feel like that's a fun party game too that you could like easily teach people. I feel like that's a good introduction game. Um, yeah. There's also I don't know if I've played this with you guys. Psych, uh, Psycho Killer, which is, um, I'm trying to think of another example. Uh, like Exploding Kittens. It's kind of like that game. Um. More like simple concept games are really f good for starters. Also, I just think any hidden role game is always fun because I think people don't understand that like the strategy of that and the fun of that would add a lot of uh, 
fun to any kind of board gaming experience. So One Night Ultimate Werewolf, I think that was one of my first experiences with a hidden role game. Um, has a fun or, theme. Yeah, it has a fun theme. It also has the fun aspect of having like your phone, your device, uh, like announcing roles as the narrator, which I don't think any other board game does. That is kind of a cool use of technology. I'll admit that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it gets around the problem in hidden role games where one person has to be the narrator and also exactly. a player. Yes. Um, oh, Happy Little Dinosaurs. I would, I would very much suggest that one. Someone who's starting out, Happy Little Dinosaurs. Simple concept, adorable art, fast gameplay. Love that one. Yes, exactly. If you had to get anyone, if you're just starting out, I would say Happy Little Dinosaurs. Okay. All right, Aaron. How about you? If you're person in the game store is like, hey, I'm looking for a couple games. What what would you suggest? Um, I would go with all social ones. And luckily for Spirit Island, if you want something simple, they made Spirit Island Horizons, which was purposely made for people new to board games, like for more new to board games and wants an easier Spirit Island experience. Um, so I would say that one. Uh, they have all simple spirits. It's only the base game cards, no special things like events and enemies. It's just like basic Spirit Island. And they also, it's like way cheaper than Spirit Island too. Spirit Island's like 90 bucks. So oh. I think Horizons was like 30 to 40. Nice. Um, I would say Betrayal at House on the Hill. Yes. It's like a, a darker version a of Scooby-Doo. Um, you just play as like five to six characters all going through a mansion. You lay down tiles to kind of find the mansion as you explore. And then one person ends up being the traitor who has to kill all the other players. But that's randomly determined based on where you go. So you'll never know who's going to be the true villain. And then I would, after that, I would say Mysterium. On the topic huh. of Ruth, she was talking about like being given an object or a word and you have to vaguely describe it. In Mysterium, one person plays as a ghost who literally cannot talk from the moment the game starts. And they have to show each player, because each player has like a hidden object that they have to find. And you have to give them like a list of like seven or eight very vague pictures. And you have to kind of they have to kind of figure out, okay, what object am I looking for? What's which who's the killer? Who's the person? And they have to kind of like figure it out from what you're giving them. So that's one that's very fun. It's very cute seeing people get very angry over the fact they can't figure out what their their object <laughs> is. Yes. So those are those are three I would recommend okay. for getting into the hobby. It's kind of like Mysterium's like clue on steroids. Yeah, it's Basically. like clue, but you have to describe the the place, the person, and the object with very vague dream pictures, and you can't talk. I I guarantee you, the inventor of that played clue and said, "Hey, how can I make this harder, or more more interesting?" <laughs> yeah, how, I guess. I I guess. Well, it's funny as the ghost too, because you have to like pull out your hair trying to figure out how am I going to explain to this person that they're looking for a candlestick when I have a picture of a flying carpet going through the desert and like this a 16th century castle, like in a misty like village. Like how, how do I just use this to describe that? It's kind of like, <laughs> so you sometimes you have to use like colors, like three yellow colored objects to hope they, they figure it out. They had a game show called the $25,000 or hundred thousand dollar pyramid or whatever. I think that's what it was called. And you had to do the yeah. same thing. You had to describe this word using other words. So it's kind of uh, the I hope same. They sneaking at the th at the Saurus because that would make it really funny. Yeah, yeah, huh? Yeah, I remember playing Mysterium. It's it's an interesting game. It's got that dark theme to it, which is kind of fun. 
Yeah, because they're all like dream like pictures, like yeah, something you see really in like a vague dream. Abstract. It's very Alice in Wonderland kind of. Yeah. Yes, Alice in Wonderland yeah. is a great way to describe it. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, we better put a pin in this, guys. Been fun. Um, I know. I think we could definitely talk some more because we didn't even get to the top twenty games of all time. We'll have to go through that oh, and discuss them. Go through that. Or what like games we want to play. Games we want to play. Oh, yes. same, same. Didn't even get to that. Yeah. I have like Cause... 20 of those. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's your $1,000 is going there. <laughs> and, oh, dude, if I had $2,000 that could only be used for board games, I would use all of it. Yes. But there's the top 20 games of all time. I'd like to get your opinion on, on these. I know you guys have played probably most of these. So I, I probably looked through every one of them. <laughs> so Moncala's on here, Ruth. So the one of yours oh, is on there. See, there you go. So. <laughs> All right. I'm surprised. You know, I was just looking. Go is not on here. That's an old game. Well, you're talking top, oh. top twenty games. Top twenty games on Board Game Geek, or which website are you using? This is on best-selling board games of all time. So, oh, okay. So this is the best-selling games of board uh, board games of all time. That's 2023. So. They're just taking every game, all the games sold. So this is, you know, number of units sold. So you're not going to see, obviously, some games that just came out two years ago because they just haven't had the time to do it. I want to see them prove that chess is the best-selling board game. Like, do they have the receipts from 2,000 years ago? Like, how do they know for sure? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, how do they know chess or Moncala that was, you know, produced, you know, 2,000 BC? Do you have the... The sales receipts yeah, from like that? King Charles receipts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've obviously they're probably going by American sales. I'm not sure. I don't know. But yeah, anyway. yeah, they aggregated figures in the last yeah, century. Yeah. So anyway. All right. Well, hey, thanks for talking board games and and uh, look in the show notes for uh, all the notes that you guys had and so you can learn more about board games and if you agree or disagree. If you disagree, send your hate mail to Aaron. <laughs> I will send you a link to Spirit Island on Amazon as a response. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, all right. Well, hey, let me. Thanks for being on this show, and we'll definitely hit this again next time. So, yes, part yeah. two. Part yeah, two. Because I'm sure your top three will change in six months. Yes. <laughs> I would love that. That'd be great. All right. Thank you very much. 